Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Baiter Podcast, where birders talk birding. As some of you know, I grew up in Maine, but I didn't stop birding until I was about 30 years old and haven't birded much in New England, except in Maine on summer visits home. One of the things on my to-do list, or my bucket list, dare I say, uh, for birding is to get out birding in each of the 50 states and record at least one eBird list from there. And three of the New England states are still without eBird lists for me. One of these years, I hope to make a loop through Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Vermont to fill out the New England states. The other four states I haven't birded are also on the East Coast. Maryland and West Virginia are pretty close together, and then South Carolina and Georgia are near each other too, and those are the seven states I, I'm still lacking. I'm hoping to go to the New River Birding Festival in West Virginia sometime, and from there take a trip to Maryland to visit those two states, and then a trip to Georgia and North Carolina should be pretty easy in the Savannah area sometime to visit those two states and check it out. Lists are something many birders do. State lists, county lists, yard lists, country lists, world lists, year lists, big day lists. If you can think of a place to go birding, there can be a list about it. And eBird makes list keeping something that just happens if you use eBird. You don't even have to think about it. And it's really gotten a lot of birders, myself included, much more interested in lists. That's probably the downside of eBird for some people. My guest today is a Connecticut birder, John Oshlick, and our conversation got me to thinking about the listing aspect of birding. John took time to pull off the highway and record our podcast on the way home from a long overnight drive from Connecticut to Pea Island, North Carolina, to see American flamingos that were being seen there. American flamingos are pretty cool birds. These birds were among the many flamingos that were blown into the United States from their Yucatan Peninsula population uh, in, in the Yucatan state of Mexico by the big hurricane recently. That statement may raise several questions. First, why would a birder drive from Connecticut to North Carolina to see flamingos? There could be a lot of answers. They're very rare birds in the American Birding Association area, or the U.S. and Canada north of Mexico, although there are tens of thousands that are easy to see at their colonies in places like Rios Lagartos, where at least one of these birds had previously been banded. Everyone likes to see rare birds, or rare things really, uh, and birders are no different. Because many birders want to add species to their lists, seeing one of these flamingos would add a bird to your United States, your lower 48, your ABA list, and to your North Carolina list if you're keeping one of those. I've had guests who are listers, and I've had others who find listing a big turnoff and just don't want to talk about it at all. And both points of view are cool to me. I, I know there are pros and cons, there are environmental concerns, but I'm just not going to get into that today. Regardless of your opinion, one of the byproducts of big storms is that birds get blown far away from their usual range. Here in Tacoma, we go to our favorite sea watch sites after storms in the fall and winter to look for seabirds that are blown on shore from their usual pelagic haunts. In the east, birders are on the lookout after hurricanes for many species to get blown to places way outside their normal range. These events are in all likelihood a big danger to the birds that are nowhere near their home range, and I don't think we really know how many of them managed to get back to, back to their home territory and how many just perished 
due to being way out, way displaced. But it's exciting for birders to see species where we don't normally get them. So enough about listing and rare birds. Help me welcome John Oshlick to the podcast, and I hope you enjoy hearing about the birding in a state where I hope to visit soon, Connecticut, and hear about his chase for flamingos and a lot more. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this with me. Hi, nice to meet you. Hi. Yeah, you told me as we uh, met uh, just a minute ago that you're on the road. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I I was following the records of the the hurricane. What was the name of the hurricane? I blanked it was, on the name. It was, it, it was a strange name, like Lizabella. It wasn't. It was a, not a common right. name. Yeah. Apparently, it, it it dumped uh, flamingos all across the uh, ABA area. A bunch of them turned up in Florida, and then kind of unexpectedly started showing up in uh, you know really random places. Two of them showed up in Ohio, and a couple of them in Virginia, uh, North and South Carolina, and I guess thir- uh, eleven of them showed up in North Carolina. So I figured I would uh, it would be a lifer for me. So I figured I would go get them. Uh, the problem is it's about a 10 hour drive from where I'm at. So, you know, it took some, took some debating. You want to make sure that you have a good chance of seeing the birds when you're going to do that kind of drive. So I, I sat around at, at home and followed the records and all I could see was that, uh, they had been scared by some, uh, surfers or something at noon and no one, there was no records, uh, after that. So I went to bed and, uh, at midnight, uh, I woke up and checked and, they had apparently been refound later in the day, so I figured there was a good chance if they were there at uh, at dusk, they'd be there at dawn. So I jumped in my car and drove down and got there about 10 o'clock. And after some looking around, I saw about 15 people up on the top of a sand dune with scopes. So I figured that was the place, and sure enough, that was the place. Uh, they were not close. They were quite far away, but, uh, you know, they were big and pink, uh, so that helps. Uh, so that was really, really cool. Um, apparently the word had gotten out and there were a lot of non-birders there that were showing up. So I, I, I helped a lot of them, you know, look through my scope at them. Uh, so a lot of people had, had quite a bit of excitement there. Right. I call it the spotting scope sign. You know, when you, when you go on a chase and you get to it, get to it, get to the destination that you see one of two things, you see a lot of birders standing around, talking to each other, looking in random directions with all the scopes pointed in different directions, or you get there and all the, all the scopes are pointing in the same direction. Eyes are on the scope. That's the spotting scope sign. That's that's what you want to see when you get there. You don't want to see uh, war stories going on and people looking here and there. The funny part is all the people that I, you know, that I let look through my scope, almost all of them pulled out their cell phone and tried to take photos through their through the scope with them. I didn't know that was just occurred to people to to do that. <laughs> yeah. Digiscoping people are, are yeah, I, even non-birders are digiscoping whenever they get, I, I, I'll i be watching birds at the local place and people go, can, can I take a picture through your scope? And they'll just, they know how to, they know how to do it, even though they're not a birder. So digiscoping has gone mainstream. <laughs> so John, you, you, uh, you had told me that you're a, a hospitalist, you know, basically a internal medicine physician who takes care of people in the hospital. And so you have, uh, you know, uh, rotating shifts that gives you a chance to do chases like this. That's a, uh, I'm a family doctor. Didn't really get that opportunity so much because I uh, you know, had appointments ahead and things like that made it harder to break free and chase, but that's a great career for a burr. Yeah. You know, working at night, it also conditions you for, you know, driving through the night and not sleeping. So I'm, 
I'm, I'm very good at that. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it, but, uh, it is a, you know, extra skill that I've, that I've accumulated. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I work like 13 hour night shifts. Uh, so it means I don't have to work that many shifts, uh, during a month. And if it's a good month, like May or June, I can, or I mean, May or November, I can take a few extra shifts off and that gives me plenty of time to, you know, extra time to, to bird. Um, especially, you know, I have a lot of free days. Um, you know, I, I often look at, you know, birders and I find a lot of birders, uh, have unusual or jobs that have unusual, you know, schedules. And I'm not sure, you know, if that's just, you know, the extra time allows people to get more, you know, involved in the sport, or if it's just very frustrating to, you know, not be able to participate in the, in the sport, uh, when you're stuck at a, you know, nine to five job. Uh, you know, especially in the days of instant communication, I imagine it can be very frustrated, frustrating uh, to hear about all these birds that are showing up and not being able to, to chase them. Literally, I have some apps and there's sightings that are popping up as I talk to you um, So, I <laughs> of birds that are being seen in the area. So it must be frustrating to someone who has to work, you know, a nine to five, five job. Uh, but, you know, it's yeah. a, it's a luxury to able to do this um you know it does you know i do have a, a wife and two young kids and you know i i can't you know i gotta limit how much i do this i was at a bouncy castle uh yesterday with my kids for much of the day um but my luckily my wife is uh is very uh understanding and lets me do this occasionally <laughs> well good for you uh so uh, everybody has their birding story tell, tell me your birding story did you uh did you were you a birder at a young at a young age, and this this was an especially attractive career because you're a birder, or did that come later? I remember I liked birds when I was a little kid, like I was, I was six or seven. Uh, you know, I, I got my parents bought me that like little golden guide of, of birds, the really thin one, and mm -hmm. I could I could name all the birds in there. And I, I remember I used to draw birds on pieces of paper. I, I think I read that the osprey had a six foot wingspan, so I. I got six feet worth of paper and taped it together so I could make a, make an Osprey. Uh, but you know, my father, he was a, he was a hunter and a fisherman. So I became a hunter and a fisherman too. And I spent a lot of time out in the woods, uh, hunting and fishing all through, you know, grade school, high school, college, uh, around college time. I, I started to, uh, majored in biology and I got a little bit more interested in bird, you know, I kind of got interested in birds again and I would go out and, you know, created a list and I looked around and looked at the, I could identify most of the common birds and I had a list and things like that, but I wasn't really a birder. I had a lot of other things going on with college and I would do things like, you know, other activities and things. And I would go out like in the middle of June and in the woods and, you know, not really see anything. Then when I, you know, I went through med school, I went through residency and I ended up matching at Yale New Haven hospital in New Haven. And I don't know, one of the first, a uh, month or two that I was there, uh, I ended up going out to Hammond Asset, which is one of our main birding sites there. And while I was there, you know, within like a half an hour, I saw my first snowy egret, my first glossy ibis, my first willet. Uh, and then I walked out further down the beach and saw my first oyster catcher. And that, you know, that really rekindled everything and hooked me. And within like a week, I had bought new binoculars, new books, and I was going out and chasing, you know, that that's really the beginning of, of where my real birding started. And I've been kind of uh, pretty obsessive ever since then. That was about 15 years ago. So 
those big birds can get you. That's kind of like my birding story. I, I was uh, you know, in practice at West Point, and uh, my wife uh, and I visited my family down in Florida. And that my my mom and dad were snowbirds and were down there for the winter. And uh, we actually flew to Key West. I had a week of leave in the Army, flew to Key West, about a couple of days there. And then we're driving from Key West up to someplace on the on the Gulf Coast. And, and Kay said, can we go to the Everglades? And I said, yeah, you know, I guess so. It's just more alligators. We've seen lots of us. No, I'm a bird watcher. I said, you're a bird watcher? And she was kind of an on-again, off-again birder for had been for years and I don't even know about it. Uh, and so we go to the Everglades and walk down in Hinga way, which is a little, uh, uh, boardwalk there in the Everglades and get, and that was before all the hurricanes who walked the end of the boardwalk and come to this lagoon. And it's like, Oh my word, you know, snowy egrets and great egrets and great white herons and great blue herons and, and ibis and just, crazy birds i never even you know knew that birds like this existed and i was just hooked right from the get-go so very cool yeah those big birds will get you so you uh finished residency and uh have been working in new haven or where do you work now uh you know i, I did my residency in medicine internal medicine and i just stayed on as a hospitalist in the in the hospitalist uh okay you know, department in the same same location, basically. So I live in Bethany, which is just right out, outside of New Haven, and I practice at Yale New Haven Hospital. Yeah. You had mentioned when we communicated before this that I, I was at West Point, so I've, I've been out on Long Island a few times when I was there. I was just beginning birding, uh, and I hadn't really thought about the Long Island Sound between uh, you know Long Island and Connecticut. I looked at a map of Connecticut, and it looks like it's got a lot of seashore, but I guess it's really... Uh, sort of Bayshore behind Long Island. Sure. T tell me about birding uh, Long Island Sound. Um, well, you know, it's a it's a great place to bird. Um, you know, I'll get to the negatives, uh, but the positives are it's a fantastic, you know, in the winter, it's a huge wintering ground for a lot of sea ducks. So uh, there's just tons of long-tailed ducks uh, all over the place. You can hear them chase, honking, you know, calling. Uh, this, they're in their you know, so that it's full of long-tailed ducks, uh, uh, large uh, rafts of scop. Um, we get both uh, surf scoter and white wing scoter. Uh, both loons are are there. Um, and in the last uh, decade or so, even common eider, which I guess didn't originally come in, uh, they moved into the sound. So you know, there's it's a you know just ecologically, it's an important wintering area, and it's a pretty good area to to bird, although it's not always fun staring out of the scope in January in uh, at Long Island Sound. Um, in the summer, uh, you know, there's terns that nest there. We have a small tern colony on one of our islands that gets common and roseate terns. But if you go into the New York area, uh, they have Great Gull Island, which I guess is supposed to be one of the biggest tern colonies in the whole uh, hemisphere. Uh, thousands of pairs of even roseate terns there. Um, along the shoreline, uh, you know, we have a number of sandy beaches. They're small and they're uh, packed with people, but we do get uh, nesting piping plovers in quite large numbers there. Even in there's Sandy Point, which projects out into New Haven Harbor. It's not a big area, but there's about a half dozen uh, uh, piping plovers nest there. Uh, you know, they 
Luckily, they mark everything off, uh, and everyone who walks along the beach respects the markers. And there's even been, I think, people suppose that because there's so many people around there, it actually chases off some of the predators. We have great breeding success there. Uh, Lease terns nest there um, and some other sites in New Haven. And also, we have a lot of salt marshes, which get um, uh, clapper rail and uh, both seaside and salt marsh sparrow. Uh you know, it's a great place to see all those species, which, you know, it can be tough to find places where you can see those birds. And, you know, they're also kind of imperiled because of sea level rise and things like that. Another cool thing is we get uh, quite a few in the winter, we get uh, a lot of gulls. And uh, there's this kind of phenomenon uh, where I don't think we actually some people probably know, I don't quite know myself, but there's some sort of like plankton bloom, possibly from the slipper shells clams uh and we'll get these kind of ephemeral ephemeral events where thousands of gulls will show up uh and feed and you'll get them you know everyone will run out and see them that day and then they'll move to another site and the challenge is to kind of pick through them but we've had some fantastic birds in there over the years including uh short build the short build mew gull common gull from europe there's also a kamchatka mew gull that it's probably the same there's either one or two that has been kind of wintering or along the atlantic coast uh and they occasionally show up in connecticut which is like a phenomenally rare bird uh we've had sladyback gull um we did have ross's gull uh, a couple years ago so you know that's a exciting you know exciting aspect of birding in long island um we also get gannets and but the only alcid we really get is a razor bill which are really cool but we don't get some of the others the problem is, you know, the actual seabirds do not come into Long Island Sound. They're kind of blocked by Fisher's Island. Uh, it's more of a political uh, political problem that Fisher's Island is part of New York. If it was part of Connecticut, things would be better. <laughs> um, but, you know, the Long Island blocks us from actual seabirds. So any seabird is rare in Connecticut. Uh, occasionally they've been forced in by, by hurricanes. Also, we sometimes have kind of feeding events. Uh, a couple of years ago, this has happened maybe three or four times in the last like decade. We've had some uh, large groups of, you know, shearwaters have moved into kind of Block Island area and have spilled over into Connecticut. Uh, also in the winter, we sometimes get rare alcids like your common mirror and your thick-billed mirror uh, that come into the sound. Now, the ex fun thing is, you know, how do we see these birds? Uh, well, none of us in Connecticut have boats. Well, a few of them do, but they're they are down at the other end of the sound, the West end where all the people live. The way we see seabirds in Connecticut is you take the long Island to Orient point ferry boat. Uh, and you sit on the deck of the ferry and uh, you stare at your, and most of the birds are concentrated right in the middle, right at the line between New York and Connecticut. So you sit there and you look for birds and you stare at your GPS on your phone. And many a time you're like literally approaching the line and, you know, one person's looking at their phone and like, is which side of the, you know, you got something great, like a great shearwater. And, you know, you're looking, what side of the line is it? And, you know, sometimes you're lucky, sometimes you're not. But that is what pelagic birding is in Connecticut. Uh, it's basically going across on the Orient Point Ferry and hoping your bird is on that side of the line. Uh, I remember a very ambitious birder uh, proposed creating a uh, pelagic corridor, which would kind of ignore state lines and project it out into the Atlantic Ocean. But uh, we, we can't we can't make up uh, 
make up Connecticut territory. Yeah, the the state lines are state lines. You just got to respect them. I think Connecticut technically doesn't it historically spread all the way across the continent. I have no idea. I have no idea. <laughs> I'm not that kind of historian. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> so, what is the birding community like in 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 your area? From uh, a fairly populous uh, part of Connecticut, uh, uh, is there a big birding community? Yeah, there there is a there is a big uh, Connecticut uh, birding community, and you know we're pretty pretty close. Uh, one of the things is you know most of the people live along the shore, and we end up you know hitting the same hitting the same spots uh, and running into everybody at the same time. Uh, you know maybe I think this is kind of the newer aspect of birding. Everything seems to be kind of linked in by you know what the site you know kind of a virtual community on the internet where we share. Uh, sightings and uh, share pictures and ID questions, you know, online through things like uh, GroupMe and things like that. Uh, sure. And if a good bird shows up, you know, I'll, because everything's so tight, you know, you can have 150 people at, at, at a good bird within, you know, two hours or so. Um, I bird at, uh, in the spring, I have, we have East Rock Park, um, which is kind of our version of New York's Central Park. Uh, and there's a whole community of the same people who show up, you know, every morning. Some of them are Yale ornithology students uh, and things like that. And, you know, we all run into each other and we have our own uh, East Rock Park uh, board. And, you know, someone will post, you know, there's a Cape May warbler up here and someone's posting. There's a, you know, a white eyed vireo down here. And, you know, we it's it's incredibly fun. Yeah, having a tight birding community is fun, and, and the communications these days make it so easy. I mean, we have oh, every play area has their Twitter groups and their WhatsApp groups, or however you want to, however you want to do it. But it's it's really nice. So you've done uh, you've done a little bit of travel outside Connecticut. What have been some of your favorite uh, sort of uh, birding afar trips? Uh, let's see. I mean, I've been to uh, you know. Texas a few times. I was there this spring. I got the, you know, I flew in the Corpus Christi and worked my way all the way to Big Bend. So I was able to see the Kalima warbler. Oh, good for you. I was able to, I was able to see the brown jays uh, that were hanging out down there. I've been to uh, Arizona a few times. I've been to California a few times. Last year, I actually took that uh, five-day uh, pelagic that goes out of san diego you know oh, that was i've really i've done that twice isn't that so cool yeah very nice uh, you know that was tremendous we got the the blue-footed boobies and things like that um with my you know with my wife and kids uh i can i can kind of swing going to texas in the summer uh alone uh she's okay with that if it's something good but you know i'm bringing the whole family along so last two years ago we all went to we went to Nome and I took them them along and oh, nice. uh, they got to see the uh, the muskox and you know we had a lynx run across the run across the road in front of us and uh, you know so that was kind of fun so if it um, I am you know you know trips like that when you have to drag everyone along get expensive but we're planning to take everyone to Costa Rica uh, next next year uh, oh, my cool. daughter's six. I'm going to wait till they're old enough that they can actually have memories of uh, sure. of this before I, before I take everyone. But I think they're they're old enough. My son's nine, my daughter's six, so they should they should remember all this. Uh, 
just now. Be careful. I, uh, I I took my kids on some really fun trips to Latin America, and now my daughter lives in Costa Rica, so I have big trips to see my daughter. It's uh, it's really cool that I get to visit Costa Rica to see my daughter, but uh, it's uh, you know, I wouldn't mind if she lived a little closer. My daughter's six, and she's uh, she's I think they they're already starting. She's in first grade. They're already starting her on Spanish. So I said, it will make you translate when you're down there. And she goes, Oh, I, I'll probably know Spanish by the time we're back. So, you know, that'll be a perfectamente. Good, good perfectamente. Si. <laughs> good. I've been studying Spanish for five years and I think I'm too old to learn a new language. I'm kind of stuck at barely, uh, communicate, <laughs> barely able to communicate, but it's good. Yeah. Good. Keeps you young. So you uh you're a member of the Connecticut Ornithological Society. What is the what is that like? I'm on the board of Washington WAS, the Washington Ornithological Society. So I, I always ask uh birders what their state the society is like and how active is it and what sort of things do they do? Yeah, I mean, I you know, that's one of the things I don't I'm not as active in as I as I could be, some of the state uh organizations. They do lead a they know. I'm not part of the organization so much, but I, you know, I'm definitely, you know, peripherally involved. Uh, there's the New Haven Bird Club, which is quite active, and I do lead some walks for them. I lead like a spring warbler walk. I lead another walk to one of the parks that has the ceruleans. I do this big day, which isn't really a big day because we don't spend all day out there. But, you know, there's uh, a lot of active walks. Uh, you know, COVID, you know, definitely affected things. We, we, do have a big, you know, COA annual meeting uh, that's been kind of pushed to Zoom. Um, but definitely there's a lot of people who are, you know, there is a, act, you know, there's kind of two, you know, it's definitely changing now. There's kind of the old system of how birding organizations were in this new kind of uh, ad hoc internet community uh, that's, and you know, how they're tied together is uh complicated thing definitely getting everyone hooked in and online and you know that's one way to have a community but it doesn't really invite speakers in um you know it doesn't organize walks there's definitely a push and pull and i find myself you know on the one side of birding and not quite on the other side of birding maybe it's because i'm busy uh a lot of it is because it's it's hard for me to be involved with an organization like that when i work random you know two mondays and two two a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you know, it's hard for my schedule to be tied into that. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, you know, get more involved with it. But. Bird Birders go through stages in their lives. I have to say, I, uh, for me, it's been the same. I had, you know, young family and, and job and uh, I, I kind of stayed active through birding for, you know, decades. And then, uh, then I uh, got retired and it's been a whole new ball game. It's fabulous. I, I recommend retirement. It's a great, uh, <laughs> It's a great way to be at the end of your career. I'm a ways away from that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a yeah. enjoy the enjoy the journey. Enjoy the journey, John. I'm gonna uh, make this not too long a uh, discussion because you are on your way home to Connecticut from uh, from North Carolina. You just parked at the side of the road, taking time to talk to me. I appreciate your taking the time, and uh, let me know if you find some more good birds on the way home. Thank you. I, I will. <laughs> I'm not looking for bird. No, I'm well, looking yeah. for a place to honestly get some sleep. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. Good for you. John, take care. Thanks for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. You have a great day. Thank you. 
Well, that wraps up the Burb Banner Podcast, episode number 160 with John Oshlick. I hope you enjoyed. I enjoyed hearing about Connecticut birding and kind of about the chasing the flamingos and some of the other stuff John does. I'm a family doctor, and I, I kind of always thought, you know, if I had been a birder when I went to med school, I probably would have chosen a specialty that allowed more time off on a reg- regular routine basis to chase birds and get out birding. But I became a family doctor and had a great career doing that, and it was all cool. And now that I'm retired, I'm footloose and fancy free and can do what I want. So that's all cool, uh, at least cool to me. Thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding. Good day. <laughs>